And this is Canvas, a show about art and ideas created by a team of artists. We are broadcasting from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay respects to our Indigenous listeners and their elders past and present. My name is David Capra. My name is Abdul Abdullah and we're joined today in the studio by our producer Aurora Scott. Good morning. Thank you for joining us this Sunday morning. Today we have a massive program. Who do we have on, Abdul? Oh, philanthropist John Keldor will join us in the studio to talk about the 33rd Keldor Public Art Project, The Last Resort by Henri Sola. And we talk about public art with a panel made up of Campbell Drake, Lisa Corsi and Felicity Fenner. But before that, what have we seen this week? I had um, an open day at Little Orange. I work at Little Orange is an inclusive studio that works from Campbelltown Arts Centre. And we had our first open day and we had all these members of the public and collectors and curators come through and it was really wonderful. I was so pooped. I then went and saw Blade Runner, the new Blade Runner film. No spoilers. (laughs) It's, It's... Pretty, it's pretty nice to look at. Very hazy. The sound is excellent, and um, but the there's one scene there that that stayed with me with Elvis. So um, that made it all I all the most. Wait. Is it the same story as the original one? It, yeah, it definitely touches on the original. You'd probably need to to see it before. But uh, yeah, I would love a, to host a movie review show with you, David. I would love that. We should do that. Yeah, we, we could get can. how many Tinas out of five. <laughs> And it'll be beautiful. What have you been up to? I was in Perth for an interesting talk at a very fancy private club of people that like culture and the arts, and they have to pay some fee every year to to join this club. And it's an unmarked door (laughs) in a very fancy building, and you go through the door, and there's like a reception guest desk and all like a fancy bar and meeting rooms. It's very like secret society esque, but it was a bit more open than that. Um, And then yesterday, I went to Underbelly, which was a whole lot of fun, and you can catch the last day at Underbelly today. And mm. I should mention the song that we just played going into this. This is a shout out to my friend David Genovese, who put me onto the Highwaymen, a super group of country music stars, including Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and a couple of others. And I've been singing that song all morning and ever, ever since I've got back from Perth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to get to our first curated track um, this week. Curating our tracks is our music producer, Laura Hunt. And first up, we've got Centerfold by Is it better than The Highwayman? Let's see. Oh 
That was Centerfold by Microfilm and a, a fantastic song. I really like that one. Um, they're curated by Laura Hunt and you're listening to Canvas Art and Ideas on FBI Radio 94.5 and around the world on digital. Uh, celebrated French-Albanian artist Henri Sulla has created The Last Resort, a sculpture and sound work for the 33rd Caldor Public Art Project, which has been developed over the last three years ahead of its world premiere in Sydney. Sulla's project will transform the Observatory Hill Rotunda, where audiences will be invited to step beneath a gravity-defining ensemble of custom-built drums to experience their rhythmic, live response to a contemporary interpretation of a Mozart concerto. In the studio, we have John Caldor, a philanthropist and founder of Caldor Art Public Art Projects, who has brought Henri and the Last Resort to Sydney. Welcome to the studio, John. Good morning. Happy to be here. Now, John, how did it all start? How did you first become passionate about art? Well, it was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> uh, when we escaped from Hungary, I was 12, and we were stateless. And we ended up in Paris, where hundreds of thousands of migrants from all different communist countries finished up. And we applied to lots of countries to emigrate, um, Latin America, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand. We just waited. And um, my parents thought that I should try and see something of the culture of Europe because we had no money, we had no idea if we would ever come back. Travel wasn't like it is now that you could hop on a plane and in 24 hours be anywhere in the world. So my mother took me to the Louvre, the Musée des Arts Modernes and all the monuments and I absolutely loved it. And uh, fortunately Australia was the first country to give us permits to emigrate and we arrived here in the middle of 1949, and I have kept up my interest in art ever since. And what was the first work that you acquired for your own self? I acquired bits and pieces because I had sort of the collecting bug. You know, I collected stamps and all sorts of things. But the first work of art I collected when I was 23, 24, on one of my first business overseas trips in Paris, actually, I bought a small black and white painting of Roy Lichtenstein, the pop artist. Oh, well, that was your first acquisition? Yes. That's a pretty good first acquisition. I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've read you, you describe your organization as an organization that's an art gypsy. Can you tell us what you mean by this? Yes. Well, we haven't got a permanent home. And we try and explore and find challenging and interesting locations for our artists to do projects. We work with well-known international artists, and they're used to doing exhibitions in museums. And while museums are different, they're basically a white cube. But we wanted to challenge these artists and get them to do works site-specific works. Uh, we did a work on Cockatoo Island before the Sydney Biennale got there. We did it in a beautiful church in Redfern, um, brick kiln works in um, Sydney Park, and now on top of Observatory Hill. And of course, last year we had the wonderful project with Jonathan Jones and the Botanic Gardens. Oh, he was recently on the show. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, good. Yeah. Well, He's a fantastic guy. 
So we try and find interesting locations, not only to challenge the artist, but also while we work with international artists, the iconic Sydney or Australian locations make the work Australian in a way. So if it's shown later internationally or publicized internationally, it's always referred back to a Sydney site. John, can you tell us about the very first of your Caldor projects and how that came about? You were 33 years old. It was 1969, and you were working uh, for Universal Textiles, and you admired a particular duo. Who were they? Well, <laughs> it was a husband and wife team, Christo and Jean-Claude Christo. Mm. <laughs> um, previously to that, because of my interest in art, I convinced this big organization that I worked for, a public company, to sponsor sculpture scholarships for Australian sculptors. I always loved sculpture, and sculpture wasn't in high regard in those days. So the sculpture scholarship was for $20,000 for an Australian sculptor to travel overseas. And that was in the 60s? In the 60s. That's $20,000, a lot of money. It was. Yeah. I don't even know whether it was dollars or pounds. Still oh, right. to, somebody has to look it up. Any, anyway, we did it once at the Art Gallery in Sydney, National Gallery in Victoria, and then back in Sydney. And I was getting a bit sort of, well, bored with it, and I wanted to open it up, and I asked my bosses, would you mind if I tried with an international artist? And they said, we don't care as long as you stick within the budget. <laughs> so on my next international trip, I met Christian Jean-Claude. I haven't met them before. I only saw illustrations of their work. And I asked them to come to Australia to uh, give an exhibition and um, an artist talk. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want to give an exhibition. We don't want to talk. We want you to find a coastline to wrap. Right. Now that I took that seriously in 1968, it literally changed my my whole life. Um, but they were so charismatic, they convinced me that that was the most important thing I could do, is to find them a piece of coastline to wrap. Now in those days, all the coastlines around Sydney was government, army or navy. I was a young man, I had longish hair, <laughs> Hungarian accent, and employed, and I walked into these uh, offices, and I said, I'd like to borrow a piece of your coastline. And they said, what for? Oh, I'd like to erect a temporary sculpture. What kind of sculpture? Well, we want to wrap it up. I mean, they just laughed and threw me <laughs> off. But eventually I came across Prince Henry Hospital, where the administrator said, okay, if you get the insurance, Doctors, nurses, and patients might enjoy it. So that was the breakthrough. And then from then on, we advanced and the project took place. Is it true that they, that um, Jean-Claude and Christo actually fly different planes when they travel about? So in case the plane goes down there, they lose one half of their collaboration. Uh, they did. Jean-Claude, unfortunately, passed away about six years ago. But till then, they always flew different. I thought planes. that was yes. the case. 
Amazing. That's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> and, and often it's the case that a person will be successful in business before they turn their hand to philanthropy and collection. But for you, it worked the other way around. Can you tell us a little exactly. bit about that? Well, you know, after the project was finished, relationships between my company where I worked and I weren't especially warm. Because oh, really? I spent, you know, most of my days out on the site rather than working in the office. <laughs> And they also didn't like what was going on. They didn't want to be associated with it. So after a few months, I thought if I can organize the wrapping of a coastline, I could probably run a small business on my own. <laughs> so that gave me the courage to start my own business. And, and in 2011, you gifted your collection uh, to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and it can be seen now at the John Keldor Family Gallery. Uh, what motivated this donation? Well... I always collected not for as an investment or not for monetary gain because I I loved what the artist created and well that's why I do also art projects because I want the public to see what is happening internationally in the world of art and I thought I've been collecting for 50 60 years and rather than disperse it and sell it at auction, um, I got together with my children, whose inheritance I was giving away, basically, and said, do you mind if I donate it to the art gallery? And they said, no, Dad, if that's what you want, uh, very happy for you to do so. So it's basically I wanted the public to enjoy it, what I've enjoyed for such a long time. And what's it like for you to walk through that level of the Art Gallery in New South Wales? Is there any particular works that are memorable or sentimental to you? Depends on the day, but I liken it to like your children. Your children were at home, and then they grow up, and they leave home, and, <laughs> and they're somewhere else, and they're nice. They're nice to visit from time to time. <laughs> you've, you've opened up your collection, and you prioritise public engagement, how do you see the function of art in society? Like, What's art's value to society as a whole? I think that's a very, very important question that you just asked me, and it's not asked often enough. I think it's a great value because art can open the eyes of children, of adults, to a different reality. Um, and... It's a reality that helps you in so many ways. It helps you in your job. It helps you in your studies. Because it gives you a different awareness. And there's not enough, there's not enough art education in schools. And as you grow up, it doesn't matter what old, how old you are, art can be a tremendous benefit. Even from a medical point of view, there have been studies made, and it's now well known, that Alzheimer patients, if they're taken to museums, they get a temporary relief. And it's being done in Australia, it's being done all over the world. So art has so many direct and indirect benefits which are not appreciated. 
And and you've been the chair of the Museum of Contemporary Art Board and a trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales and have, have participated on boards on the Tate Modern, uh, MoMA PS1 and the Biennale of Sydney. And I've read currently you're serving on the International Council of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, what do you see your role in facilitating? How do you see your role in facilitating contemporary art in Australia? I think the most direct way is by bringing international artists to Australia, like with this project, like with Henri Sala, our last project on observatory here. Because all our projects are free to the public. We endeavour to do it in accessible places where the public can easily find it. All our projects have public education about it, starting with school children to adults and it's always something different. And when you are choosing work to come to Australia, what questions are you asking? What are you looking for? Do you have the Australian public in mind? No. Uh, What we are choosing, and it's not only me, we have a small team, Mm. are artists who are doing work which is groundbreaking, which hasn't necessarily been seen in Australia and which would be a benefit for Australian artists and Australian public to see firsthand. See, we we don't bring exhibitions to Australia. That's for galleries to do. We actually bring the artist to interact with other artists and with the public, like um, Henri Sala became good friends with Daniel Boyd, well-known Australian artist. And they met a few times while uh, Henri is here. So it's making connections, which will help also local artists. Uh, Daniel Boyd is one of my favourites. <laughs> okay, yeah, can't wait to interview him. Um, we're, um, so we're about to open the new public artwork by Albanian French artist Henri Seller that we've just been talking about. How did you first come across his work? I was introduced to him oh, almost 10 years ago and um, we really hit it off well and he came for a site visit in 2012. We looked at a lot of different locations in Sydney and Melbourne and we were going to do a project in 2013 but then he was chosen to represent Venice in the 2013 Biennale and, and he got his priorities wrong. He rather yeah. did the Venice Biennale than doing a project. A little bizarre. distraction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we kept in touch, and um, the last resort was definitely wait, worth waiting for. It's a fantastic work on a beautiful site. I've heard you say that to encounter art unexpectedly is a great experience, and that one of the aims of your projects is to create an experience for the everyday passerby. How do you expect the public uh, will engage with Honoré's work? I have no idea, but I hope positively. (laughs) And there are different levels of engagement. Some people will just come and look and think what is going on and walk away. Some people will inquire. Some people will come back, ask questions. We have free giveaway brochures that give an outline of the project, an outline of Henri's background. So at least there is a a minimal entry to the work. But we have a small catalogue, which is quite cheap, 
So that, like in anything else, there are different levels of engagement from people who, as I say, just come for the notoriety or want to find out what's going on to others who really engage with it. Thank you so much, John. We, we're going to head over now to our producer, Alexia Giacomazzi, who talked to Henri yesterday on site at the work, at the last resort, and we're going to hear a bit of that now. Hi, Henri. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Welcome. The installation looks incredible. Um, would you be able to describe the work? Well, the, the, the work is a, it's a combination of audio and, and sculptural, so it's like a... I would say a sculptural manifestation of a musical composition. It was inspired from and based on the concerto for clarinet of Mozart, which was, I would say, contemporary to the arrival of the First Fleet in Australia. Uh, and I was particularly interested in this very key and intricate moment of encounter between two different civilizations, but also an encounter between the very high ideals of the European Enlightenment and, uh, and their own fallouts the moment they, they made contact with other civilizations. So uh, I've always been interested like enlightenment, just by the name itself, this idea of opening the eyes and um, uh, giving more, setting the individual free from other forces that beforehand used to have a control on, how this, uh, this enlightenment produced a moment of blindness when it came to meet and recognize other civilizations that had a different way of life. So uh, in your past video work you often employ sound to embolden spaces of conflict. How does this, the last resort, intervene in this space? In the last resort is the, is the conflict I just spoke about in a more conceptual level between the, the high ideas and their fallout as they made it ashore somewhere else. But there is also another conflict within the rearrangement of the music because I completely reapproached the, the second movement adagio of Mozart's concerto, uh, took away, ex extracted and took away all the original tempi indications which were written by, by Mozart and replaced them with uh, wind descriptions. So there is yet also another conflict or tension which is within the, the rewriting of the music itself which was rearranged. So the music, like I said, is based uh, entirely on the, on, the, on the composition and the score of Mozart. So all the notes are there. But the relation between the notes and the tempi, tempi have been changed. What I did is that I extracted and took away the, the, the tempi originally uh, written by Mozart and exchanged them for the wind descriptions that I found in a book in a private journal of a Scotsman, uh, James mm. Bell, who traveled uh, back then by ship from England to Australia. And before, back, because back then the only way to, to travel, to sail was by wind and the, and the ocean currents, the wind was basically the engine, was what was bringing you forward. So this was where people were putting their best hopes as well. So uh, because of the, the, the different winds, but also because English is a very rich language when it comes to describing the differences in the wind, this gave me an, an ample possibilities of reinterpreting the, 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 the tempi of the concerto according to the winds, to the daily winds. So if I put it very simply, it would be like as all of a sudden you consider a musical bar equals one day. 
Um, so now it's the winds that carry the concerto, sometimes in the direction and in the in the in the flow and in the tempo that that Mozart uh, wished and composed it for. But sometimes they can drift it apart, take it aside. Sometimes the relation between the note changes when the wind is against. Then the consecutive order of the note is not the same. It's no longer first the solo clarinet followed by the tutti, but then it could be the tutti which precedes the the solo. So that the 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 it's really like the concerto under the weather. As a practitioner, I realize this is a very public space. Uh, how has your methodology had to change in order to facilitate working into a public space as opposed to perhaps working in a studio to produce video work or to edit, to do post-production in, in a studio? Well, we did prepare as much as we could things in the studio, but of course, given the scale of it, uh, we, I couldn't really yet start editing and mixing with the, the 38 drums. So I'll prepare certain sections, certain parts, just to, to in the studio, up to hanging up to eight drums. And of course, what were the most important steps in the production was first simulating the changes uh, in a in a in a by using software and music, music softwares, and then writing the scores, and then giving the scores to an orchestra, which is the Munich Kammern Orchestra, Chamber Orchestra, uh, then who were conducting, uh, uh, following my, our instructions, my instructions, in order to have the, the sound material that we need. And then here on the side, this is the first moment where we could really have all the drums together in the acoustics of this place with the environment and the and its soundtrack around, whether it's the, the traffic hum of the birds or the people who are uh, coming along. And of course, uh, this is a moment where one takes in all this info important information and mixes them in, in sense of finding the right dynamics between the volumes of the different, uh, uh, between the music, the reaction of the drum, the sound of the, of the drum, sticks bouncing back on the skin and uh, uh, all these moments of correlation between the music and the drumming. What's next? Well, there are a few things. Some of them are still in the early steps, so it's difficult for me to describe. I can't even yet describe them to myself. <laughs> but what I know, I have an exhibition in December in, uh, in, in a museum in Sao Paulo. It's like you said, it's very different when you make an exhibition within a museum and when you make an, an exhibition outdoor, the dynamics are, are different. Uh, also in the sense that when you do something outdoor, whatever you do, it, it just occurs, it happens to the people. It, some, some of them, it takes them by surprise. While when people come to a museum, they come to see your work, or at least they come to see the exhibitions in the museum at a given time, including yours. So there's a very different... Um, approach. Uh, it's more unpredictable. It's more unpredictable, and which which uh, which also carries its uh, its qualities. Because I think it's also very interesting to work with the perception of the people when they have no guidelines. When uh, because when things just happen somehow, and when they happen generously, somehow people also let themselves get along with them without having preconceived ideas about what to do with it, how to look at it, how to listen to it, how to like or not like it.
That was Visnaga by Felicia and um, curated by Laura Hunt. We are joined in the studio by artist and architect and research, researcher Campbell Drake, Lisa Corsi, who has walk, worked on various public artworks, and the director of UNSW Galleries and curator Felicity Fenner. Welcome, everyone, to the studio. Thank you. Um, we're going to start big, uh, so perhaps we can start the discussion with a definition. Uh, Campbell, what is public art? Uh, I'm going to side glance that, that uh, question. Um, <laughs> yeah. However, I can tell you um, what I think is the role of public art. Yeah, that's, that's a yep. good answer. Um, so I'm particularly interested in public art, which is based in iconic architectural spaces. Um, and the role that I see that playing is that it's operating on, um, on collective memory as well as the built environment. And I'm also interested in public art that can place pressure on, I suppose, conventional modes of cultural production and consumption. And what about you, Lisa? What are, you, what are your thoughts on the role of public art? I'm going to bring it right down to art. Okay. Um, because whether it's public or private, I think art is a form of resistance. Um, and I think it's an opportunity for people to take part in in a public life. And how about you, Felicity? Look, I think, um, going back to the definition, yeah, the which definition. was your original question, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's changed dramatically um, in recent decades. I, I think public, I can tell you what it's not. It's not bronze sculptures of important men anymore. That's what it was probably until 20, 30 years ago. I think now... Um, Public art is very much more community-oriented. It's about participation. Um, it's about consultation, what communities actually want, rather than uh, big memorial kind of sculptures getting plonked in. And Felicity, you've written a book called Running the City, Why Public Art Matters. Without any spoilers, why does it matter? Uh, well, um, I, look, I just touched on some of the reasons. I think uh, community building, I think the, the new wave of public art that we're looking at now in the 21st century is very much about people working together. I mean, for example, sometimes it's as simple as a vegetable garden can be a public artwork. Jeremy Della had a fantastic one at Munster, the British artist at Munster, um, this year, which was a 10-year uh, documentation of um, people that worked in the Kleingartens, the little garden gardens, the allotments, I think they're traditionally called. He documented uh, who they were and what they were doing over 10 years, and then the public was allowed in to sort of understand what they were doing, and that's public art. So I think um, it, it does matter because it do can really bring people together, not just be a place-making sculpture. And Felicity, your book is called Running the City. Your book actually entails stories of actual running. Is that right? Yeah, I, was, I wanted to do a book that brought together two of my interests. One is sport, including running. <laughs> um, I've got a kid who's a really fast runner, so I've spent a lot of time trackside watching 100-metre sprints and, um, and, and public art. And there is incredibly... I mean, since around... The last 10 years, really. Martin Creed did this great work for Tate Britain in 2008, which was um, it, well, it was hijacked by the 
Olympic Committee as a sort of publicity stunt for the 2012 Olympic Games in London. But essentially it was a, a runner, a, a proper athlete, um, running every 30 seconds in Tate Millbank, so that's the old Tate Gallery, Tate Britain, um, from the Millbank Millbank entrance on the river right to the back of the main gallery which is about just over 80 metres so it's almost a 100 metre sprint and they would just bolt down there at full speed every 30 seconds and it was quite discombobulating for people in the gallery <laughs> as you can imagine and that, that work got me thinking how art that is using athletes and other types of sport as well. David Cross, Australian artist, does fantastic sort of community sporting events as public art. Um, how it can just make you rethink space and rethink um, your your connection to the public arena, which, you know, as we know, is getting eaten up by corporations, and how you can reclaim it and think differently about it. This is a total aside, but did you guys know there was a Martin Creed show, in, a Martin Creed work in Potts Point, like, two weeks ago? He had a, the, his balloon room there. I kind of stumbled across oh, it. Oh, the one from the Sydney Biennale. Yeah. From it was, years ago. They're, yeah, they're, it's from Jonathan Watkins, 98, Sydney Biennale. Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, so fun. <laughs> it, it was so much fun. Were they all white balloons? They were yellow balloons oh, this yellow, time. Oh, because the first time they were white. But yeah. it was, you had to buzz into a particular gallery to get in there. I can't remember the name of the gallery. It's a new yeah. one. And so we, we were there, and there's only two of us in the space. And fun. when I've been into it before it's been a line of people but this time there was just us it was amazing <laughs> sorry to go on that uh, that detour um campbell as an artist and architect how do you see well here we go this is what i've done i've done the same uh, anchorman thing where i'm reading the question without and we've already <laughs> answered it we talked about the role so <laughs> what what's your relationship to public art um, my relationship to public art. So as an architect, um, I've been working with, um, I suppose, culturally significant spaces for um, quite a long time. And um, I suppose it's cathartic in some ways for these uh, in, uh, creative interventions to move into spaces which are often um, in a, um, a phase of renewal. So whether they're scheduled for demolition um, or whether they're scheduled for um, further development. And in that um, space between... I suppose uh, re redundancy and renewal. There's this opportunity for creative programming, and as um, Felicity had said, sometimes that does get uh, hijacked by um, other kinds of, um, I suppose, capitalist modes of, of development. Um, however, there is still real, real opportunity for creative intervention that can kind of critique that space and and really, um, uh, I suppose, activate these sort of critical insights into, I suppose, urban spatial politics. And you're, you're listening to Canvas Art and Ideas on FBI Radio. And we're talking about public art with Campbell Drake, Lisa Corsi and Felicity Fenner. And Campbell, let's expand on that a little bit. Can you tell us about your project, Embodied Text, that was commissioned at Market Estate in London about this architectural intervention? Yep. Um, so that was a, a housing estate in North London, which was um, scheduled for demolition. And it was a particularly... Uh, notorious estate, um, which was a, a consequence of the right to buy scheme in the Thatcher years. Um, so this particular estate was scheduled for demolition. So there was a group of uh, of artists who'd formed a, an allegiance with um, some developers, and they had uh, commissioned uh, twenty artists to intervene within this space to to show, I suppose, the histories, um, the people. Again, it was a community building exercise. Um, and so my own intervention was looking at um, the role the media had played on, I suppose, the, um, 
the the impact of um, the media upon um, the social fabric of this building. So by inscribing these sort of headlines into the building, and then at, w- when the building was de- was de- demolished, it actually uh, it, these headlines, I suppose, appeared at a kind of urban scale, so that the communities could see this relationship between the media and and um, the architectural and social fabric of that building. And Lisa, your relationship to public art is quite broad. You've worked with Mike Parr at the Bond Store in Sydney, and what what's your relationship? Tasmania Hobart. Oh, Tasmania. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's all right. What what um what what's your relationship to public art? What's your involvement? Um, okay. So I'm going to start with a story. Um, and in fact, FBI has got a lot to do with that story, oh. because <laughs> out the front where you guys take pictures with everybody mm-hmm. is an artwork by Nils Crompton and that artwork is the result of the 2010 safari and so I'll give you the story behind that. So is that what, the front of FBI, the front facade of the Yeah, building? you know, the pink and blue. Yeah. yeah, so the pink and blue streaks. It is an artwork. It is a public artwork. Who would have known? <laughs> known? Well, there it is. It's on radio, I'm telling you. Um, so I'll just give you the background because I think um, in terms of my relationship with public art, again, you know, making that distinction between public art, you know, sort of, I mean, the question is, well, you know, what is private art, I suppose. So um, for me, it's never really been a question of public-private, but it's about creating opportunities. And that's precisely what Safari was all about. So um, in 2010, when we received the submissions from these completely unknown artists, Nils Crompton was one of them. And he basically came up and said, um, or in his proposal, it was written that he wanted to um, have on screen inside a video, um, you know, sort of facades that he would like to rework on, you know, sort of urban dwellings, heritage buildings, etc. And so at the time, Daniel Hayes um, and I, who was the other co-curator at that point in time, we thought, well, hang on let's try and push this because clearly there's a, there's a real desire to want to, um, you know, sort of interact with the, the, the urban facade, with, you know, a pu- the public life. So let's see how far we can push it. And so we, um, at the time, Central Park was being redeveloped or about to be redeveloped. And we went to the city of Sydney and asked them to um, whether we could actually use the facades of all the Victorian terraces that were about to be brought down. And we were told that, no, you know, you need to do a DA, you need to do, even though they're about to be destroyed. And so we thought, right, this is all too hard. Um, we're going to find an alternative. And um, I don't know how or why, but, you know, sort of clearly something spoke and I called up FBI. And I said, right, we've got this artist who wants to do something, you know, like on a facade. Are you guys up for it? The response was fabulous. It was like, yes, let's do it. So, um, you know, so, you know, within a matter of weeks, you know, sort of it was all sort of in train and we were able to basically challenge ourselves as curators um, that were, you know, more so comfortable working within the white cube. Um, so challenge ourselves by coming outside, but also challenging the artist who clearly had a real desire but wasn't too sure how to move forward with it. And it was a really special moment, you know, sort of like when you are able to to break through. Um, So, yeah. Lisa, you've been quoted 
as describing the task for artists as creating platforms for permanent temporary moments and as making way for a graffiti concept without it being graffiti. Can you unpack that for us? Okay, so I'll give you the background on that. Um, so that was a um, part, it's actually quoted in a brief that was for the city centre laneways um, project that the city of Sydney has put together. And um, so Barbara, Barbara Flynn is the curator for that. And when we were talking about, okay, well, you know, what is the opportunity here? What can we really do? Um, the idea of creating um, a permanent platform for artists, activists, anybody who's interested in participating in public life, creating that platform so they can participate. And so making that permanent, making that participation permanent. Um, so that's the background of um, to that. It's really just making sure that people have the opportunities that we make room to have a dialogue and, you know, living in a what we hope is a democratic society, um, that's really what we should be encouraging more of. And this is a question to everyone. Um, what do you think is the most common misconception surrounding artists that is that I guess believed by the corporate sector or those working as placemakers or project managers? What's the misconception about artists that you seem to come uh, face all the time? Um, I'll jump in. Lisa um, talked earlier about art as a form of resistance, and I think that's a problem in terms of perception. I think that um, big corporations see artists as a bit renegade and perhaps that the artist's agenda is not going to align with their corporate agenda, that it's not the right look for them, that there's going to be some kind of political message about capitalism that might contradict um, their branding, for example. Look, I'll give you an example, which is a, a piece that Lisa and I worked on a few years ago. Caroline Rothwell, who's a terrific artist and does work in the public sphere, um, as part of the City of Sydney Laneways project, uh, she put two little bronze figures, little children, um, outside the Burberry store. It's Burberry, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in at the corner of Barrack Street and George, just opposite the bottom of Martin Place there. And it was a temporary work, so Burberry were fine about that. It was up for three months or something. So popular that um, we decided in the city to make them permanent. So it, And then, then there was resistance from Burberry because it wasn't quite the look that they wanted, like a, a kid in, hood, in a hoodie um, doing a handstand. Uh, they thought that, you know, it wasn't quite the Burberry look and so there was a bit of resistance there. So you, you do get that. I mean, people want art that fits with their corporate image and art rarely does that. Can I just add um, to, to that? I walked past um, Caroline's, one of the youngsters, um, a couple of weeks ago and found this beautiful black plaque and it actually looked like a plaque for the artwork mm. but then reading it a bit closer it's actually a text um, pulling people's attention to children um, in refugee camps mm. and that for me was absolutely magical because that is the role of public art it's about okay you know it, it's 
it's a space where there is room for discussion, where there is room for debate. And it's not just, you know, sort of a corporate stance. It's not just a political stance. It's not just, you know, a, an artistic resistance stance. The platform is for everybody. And that's when you know that, you know, there are thinking, feeling human beings in the world or, you know, or in the space that you live in. So to see that plaque for me is just an add-on to what Caroline sort of started out, but it just has evolved over time. Mm, people bring their own meaning Absolutely. to the work, which was Absolutely. not the artist's intention. I remember that when that went up, there was some talk, wasn't there, about... Do we remove it? Do we send the city's mm-hmm. graffiti team in? And it was like, no, actually, mm. it's engaging with people and so we leave it there. Yeah. It's terrific. And Campbell, have you ever had any resistance to your public interventions, like from corporate bodies or otherwise? Um, <clears throat> have I had any resistance? Um, no, a lot of negotiating. And I think just following on from your, your comments um, that the uh, public artwork isn't kind of a definitive moment. It Very much it's a kind of fragmented array that um, involves all sorts of situations, scenarios. So that can be sort of before I do a public artwork, there's a, a lot that goes into negotiating with the various stakeholders and that can be um, local councils, um, private owners, state bodies, etc. And some of that negotiation, I think, has agency in terms of um, the ability to open up new avenues for other creative practitioners down the track. Um, the, and so I'm sort of interested in, I suppose, decentering the primacy of just the event and to say that post as well, that, that there's this, the performance documentation plays a, a quite a large role also in this idea of creating kind of a discursive space that extends beyond just the artwork. And are any of you willing to share uh, ways which you've had to fight for an artist to to help them uphold their vision? Anything come to mind, Lisa? Um, well, I, su- I suppose the, um, the the whole thing of um, well, Nils Nils's work, you know, is sort of like, no, I'm sorry, you're going to have to do a DA and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. But there was a real commitment to seeing it through with the artist. So, you know, there are there are always other ways of doing things and, um, you know, I mean, and and that for me was definitely one work um, where it just, you know, you have to be nimble um, and you have to be open and receptive to other ways of doing things. Felicity? Um, Look, almost every public artwork, you've got to go in and bat pretty hard for the artists. There there is... um, there's so many obstacles and hurdles that you have to jump. Uh, we did a piece in Taylor Square with David Cross, which was a water slide, and that, and uh, an in big inflated water slide. And there was problems. I mean, the city was great, and we had a, a DA to do a temporary artwork. But what we hadn't really considered was the homeless community that live around there and how we just plonk this big thing down. And so we had to work around them. That wasn't a community we thought we'd get resistance from, but we did. So you really need to know the area and the community that you're putting a public artwork into very well to to make the right decisions about it. Campbell, can you think of a time when you've been making a work or and you've had to particularly, it's been particularly challenging? Um, I'm, I'm producing a new project in a couple of weeks in, in a D division at Pentridge in, in Melbourne. Um, uh. And um, it, it has, it's yet to get the green light, I'll put it that way, because it does involve, um, I, I suppose, the, the burning of an upright piano in one of the prison courtyards. And um, so at the moment I'm negotiating with council and um, various 
um, firemen uh, in, in order to get it in order um, and risk assessors um, and other institutions who are involved in the project um, to ensure you know, safety so it gets and I don't think there's any real risk however you just have to to go about these things quite methodically. Yeah, yeah. good luck with that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we're, we've just about run out of time, but quickly, is there any uh, like a successful ex example in your mind in recent times of a public artwork that you've ad admired? It could be one of your own. I know you've got one, Lisa. I've actually got two. So one's an international example and one is a very local Sydney example. I'll start with the international example. Um, it's an artwork called Il Grande Creto by uh, an Italian artist who is now dead. Alberto Buri was his name. He was part of the Arte Povera movement. It's a public artwork um, that spans 8,000 square metres um, in the town of Gibellina in Sicily. I won't, I won't describe it because we have run out of time, but um, just look it up because it is an incredible work and its history, how it came to be and the, the number of years that it actually took to realise is fabulous. There's a great story behind that one. And the other one um, that is a local example, which I've been, I, I think is a fabulous um, artwork in, in Sydney that has just recently been installed is Underwood Ark by Michael McIntyre. And it's in Underwood Lane in the, um, in the city. And it was actually a collaboration between um, the National Art School, Judith Blackhall was involved in that as well, um, and Mervac. So that, for me, is an example of, you know, when it does work, you know, sort of like the private and public sectors do come together and create something really magical. It certainly didn't happen without, you know, sort of like its own issues, um, but it really is a fabulous example. Felicity? You said we could talk about one that we did ourselves. Yes. I co-curated um, a project with Anne Loxley in Perth earlier in this year. This year, and again, it brought together my our actually Anne and I are both AFL diehard fans, Swannies. But um, with the <laughs> with the inaugural season this year of the AFL Women's League, we got pretty excited. So we did a big project on Fremantle Oval, and we, we invited Lara Toms, fantastic public sphere artist, and she worked with the Perth duo Snapcat. So there were three artists involved, and they got together all the women's groups that they could think of, like the WA Embroiderers Guild, the Girl Scouts, old female... Um, AFL players called the Old Girls, the Shirleys, they're all called Shirley. People came from <laughs> far and wide and um, we did this amazing sort of uh, celebration on Frio Oval. It was called Before the Siren. And Camp? Um, so many, but, but my, my go-to place, the, my favourite project of all time is, is Rachel Whiteread's house in London, where she um, did this negative cast of a house which is scheduled for demolition. And similarly, um, you're talking about the, the work that was um, put into, was it Martin Place, the, with the little the bronze statues? Yes, Caroline. It, it, was, it was designed as a, as a temporal work, and, and it was then... Um, the community really um, took hold of it and it grew in stature and it started to talk about all these other kinds of um, political sort of spatial um, issues to do with um, housing. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my favourite public artwork. And how about you, Abdul and David? Do you have one? That's a good question. Because I've only been Fairfield in the, in the suburbs. I admire a lot of 
a lot of sculptural things that appear in the front of people's homes. There's one um, near my home that particularly liked the Today Show. So they've painted their <laughs> front gate um, all the Today Show colours and it says, I wake up in t- with Today in big letters. And then oh, they've... Wow. And recently, where was I? I was near um, Nambaka Heads and they painted... Like, I don't know if you know the um, Sydney artist Linda Marinon. She does mm. these incredible ceramics, ceramics of um, Edwardian ladies. Well, they look like these these sculptures were bought in Bunnings and then painted these gaudy colours of these of these um, women in in long flowing dresses and it was I couldn't stop looking at them they were amazing. What about you? That's not quite public art, but I guess oh, it, is. Yeah, it is. Actually, yeah, I'm going to go down your path and do the similar thing on the street that I grew up in in Perth. One of the uh, the front fences, the the kids of the family, half of them supported the Dockers, half of them supported the Eagles. So there was a half mural of the Dockers colours and the half mural of the Eagles colours. So they all got half a fence each, which I thought was very nice. Diplomatic, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Aurora? Um, I, I don't know if this has actually happened yet, but I saw it at the Venice Biennale and it was um, William Kentridge has been commissioned to do a public artwork along um, the river in Rome, whereby he makes um, images by cleaning off um, the pollution off the stone walls to the side. And then over time, as um, the pollution continues to happen, it disappears. Um, and I thought it was really beautiful. I'm not sure if it's happened yet. I think it might be 2018. It actually it? has happened. Oh, it has? And um, I saw another example of a very similar work, but I think it was in the UK. I'd have to go back and sort of do the research, but I know it has happened before. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. was that Kentridge as no, well? No, it oh, wasn't. There was one in yep. um, Brazil also. Was there? Involved this well, there you cleaning. Go cleaning. Bit um, of a zeitgeist oh, moment. Yeah. 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 Oh, thank you so much yeah. for joining us today. Um, we're going to get back to our curated tracks from Laura Hunt. Uh, this is Not Set Bluff by G.S. Sultan.
Oh, St. George Meter Squared is an A pop-up art festival for the St. George region, taking over the shopfront building with performance, visual art, music, food and film uh, in St. George Meter Squared, an interactive arts experience and community festival for all ages on Saturday the 21st of October and Sunday the 22nd of October. Next week we have a very special episode. We're doing an outside broadcast live from the book fair at Art Space. I won't be there. I'll be in I'll be in Paris. Oh no. <laughs> um, lucky, you. lucky me, I'll be there for an outfit, my own outfit. Uh, you can come and join us at 11 a.m. Oh, you can join them at 11 a.m. where they'll be talking to Giselle Stansborough, Athena X from the Rural Housewives of Sydney. I'm um, actually and and Freak Lom and Parker Bruce plus more. So we will be um, having the launch of Unmagazine directly un- after that. So come to that. And it's also the last day of Underbelly as well. It is. Go check it out. Thank you for listening and thank you to our guests, John Keldor, Henri Sala, Campbell Drake, Lisa Corsi, Felicity Fenner, and of course, Laura Hunt for curating the tracks. And Canvas is brought to you by a team of artists, Abdul Abdullah, David Capra, Nat Randall, and Aurora Scott. Now to our final curated track by our music producer, Laura Hunt. Stay tuned. This is Six Yat Wound by Osigmore Corps. Happy Sunday. <laughs>
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.